AFIO Now is presented by Northwest Financial Advisors, where our world revolves around you. Hello, everyone. This is Jim Hughes with AFIO Now. We are a program of recorded interviews with former senior U.S. intelligence officers and those we write about them. Today, I have a very interesting guest. He's both, and he has a topic that is of really timely interest. His name is Eric Dahl. He is a retired U.S. Naval Intelligence Officer. He has a number of degrees from Tufts, the Naval War College, the London School of Economics, and Harvard. And he is currently an Associate Professor and Associate Chair in National Security Affairs at the Naval Postgraduate School. He's written a number of scholarly articles that have appeared in uh, uh, quite a few um, journals. And he has a brand new book out, and it's entitled the COVID-19 intelligence failure, while warning was not enough. Eric, welcome to AFIO Now. Thank you, Jim, it's great to be with you. Eric, in your book, which I just finished uh, reading and enjoyed, you say that uh, the US government's response to COVID-19 was an intelligence failure. What's your reasoning for that? Well, first of all, thank you very much for for having me. Glad to be able to talk about this topic and and the book. I make a pretty strong argument in this book, and I've got to say, and I'm looking forward to chatting with you about it now, uh, uh, I've got to say that a lot of my friends still working in the intelligence community uh, disagree with me, uh, and, and so hope we'll discuss that. Uh, but I do feel uh, that a big reason why the COVID-19 pandemic hit the United States and the world as hard as it did, and it still is, a big reason for that was because it was a global intelligence failure. And that includes failures on the part of the traditional intelligence community, which we'll be talking about here, I think mostly, but also, and just as important, a failure on the part of what I have learned is an even larger intelligence and warning and surveillance system on the part of the medical and public health communities in this country and around the world. And tragically, both of those intelligence systems failed to provide the necessary warning, the sort of the tactical response. We just didn't didn't understand the threat until it was too late. Eric, in your book, you address this at some length. Um, was this an intelligence failure? Was it a systems failure? Or was it perhaps both? I think certainly there were a lot of things that went wrong, as we all remember, especially in those early weeks and months of the pandemic. And, and that's really the, the time frame that my book focuses on. Let me explain it a little bit more, uh, that certainly there were larger systems failures, as we all remember, uh, this country, around the world, we just weren't ready in terms of personal protective equipment. You know, we found that supply chain problems that we hadn't prepared for uh, were hitting us. We found that the scientific and medical communities weren't ready, not just on on a sort of surveillance and, and indications and warning posture, but they also weren't ready to deal with this sort of a disease. We remember the debates in the early days about whether masks were a good thing or not, those sorts of things. So there were lots of different kinds of problems including problems at the top of the U.S. government, where President Trump and many of his, many of his advisors were not receptive to the warnings they were getting. 
But what I'm focusing on in this book and what I think we as a nation, as an intelligence community, and as the world need to do better to prepare for the next crisis, we need to improve our intelligence and warning systems. And what I mean by an intelligence failure is not that intelligence didn't warn. In fact, uh, we, we probably all remember that for years, for decades, before COVID-19 hit us all, members of the intelligence community and many outside experts have been warning that we, the world, the country, we face the threat of a global pandemic. And in fact, we may remember that in early 2019, the then Director of National Intelligence, Dan Coats, in his annual testimony before Congress, he warned that we were at risk of a, a terrible global pandemic. There were war games, there were tabletop exercises, think tanks that warned about this. But as the subtitle of my book gets at, what I wanted to try to understand when I started working on this book early on in the pandemic was, why weren't those warnings enough? How could it be possible that even though experts from DNIs to Bill Gates, who for years, decades, has been sponsoring lots of public health work around the world, uh, many other experts were warning us what went wrong. And I think a big part of the problem was with the traditional intelligence community, although, of course, all we can talk about is what is available in open source, unclassified information. That's all that, that I have access to that I used for this book. But it struck me early on that the traditional intelligence community was following the open source, the, the medical literature, following the news when in a, in a perfect world, and I realize we, we can't live in a perfect world, but in a better world, the intelligence community would have been leading the way, would have been using its special accesses, its special sources of information to gather in, intelligence beyond what was available in the open source. And, and from what we know today anyway, that wasn't the case. Eric, in your book, you argue that um, the duty to warn is not enough that senior intelligence officers also have to convince senior policymakers. Can you elaborate, please? Yes. And, you know, this is a, a it's a great debate that, that we're having within the intelligence community. Uh, and, you know, I still keep one one foot back in in the government, still have my, my clearances, even though I don't make use of any of that for for any of this this work that I do, this public public work, publishing work. But we have a big debate about what is the role of intelligence? Uh, is it enough to to essentially just warn or, you know, as we used to say, you know, we throw the warnings over the transom. You know, we don't have transoms any anymore in our office doors, I don't think. But, you know, kind of the traditional view is more or less, you know, uh, we, you know, we warn and you throw something over the transom and then that's the end of our job. And the story that the story that sort of encapsulate this. I, I call it a sea story, even though it's not really sea, but, you know, as a Navy guy, I like to think of these things as sea stories. You know, the story is about Henry Kissinger. And many in our audience may remember this story uh, that back when Henry Kissinger was serving, I believe at that time, he was both the Secretary of State and the National Security Advisor. And he would receive every day a copy of the President's Daily Brief, that a briefer from CIA, of course, that was running the PDB back then, uh, would come to his office and brief him. And, and one day, as the briefer was going through the, the folder with the, the briefing slides before uh, Secretary Kissinger, he came to an item that mentioned that there had been a, a coup attempt somewhere in Upper Slavobia, who, wherever it was. And Henry Kissinger 
reacted to that with a start. And he said, you know, wait a minute, you have to imagine I'm saying this with a, a gravelly, deep German accent, but I won't try to do that. But and he said, wait a minute, you know, you can't just tell me there was a coup attempt somewhere. You've got to got to tell me ahead of time so that we can we can adjust things. You know, that Henry the K used to like to sort of, uh, uh, you know, uh, do things around the world and, and uh, make sure things were working in America's favor. Now, the CIA briefer knew this, had a good relationship with, with Henry Kissinger, as good as you could have, uh, and knew what he wanted. And he said, ah, yes, Mr. Secretary, well, let me show you the briefing book from Tuesday. And he brought, brought forward the, the book and he said, yes, uh, see here on Tuesday, I briefed you that there was the, the possibility of a coup attempt in Upper Slavobia. And the briefer at that point thought, I'm, I'm good, you know, uh, clearly uh, I've done, done my job even better than you can expect. But Henry Kissinger still wasn't happy. And, and he responded and said, well, <clears throat> you may have warned me about a coup attempt, but you didn't convince me. Now, intelligence insiders tell that story to make fun of Henry Kissinger and to point out that, well, you know, what, what can we do? You know, even when we do a good job of providing warning and then what I warn about happens, we get in trouble. But I think there's a more important and more subtle lesson in that story. And that is that when we, when the intelligence business, when we warn policymakers, recipients, consumers, customers, when we warn them about some threat, and then if that threat actually happens, and that customer, that policymaker doesn't even remember that we brought it up, then something's wrong here. We've got to do a better job. And certainly our job is not to, not to convince, not to perhaps not even to tell decision makers what we suggest they might do, although that's a that's an issue. You know, how much of a uh, how far should we go in the intelligence business with providing options or should we do that at all? But we definitely in the intelligence business, we need to be aware enough about our policymaker, our customers, likes, dislikes, predilections to understand that if there's something really important and we don't think that customer is is understanding that. Sometimes you need to you need to take the advantage and, and have sort of an, oh, by the way, you know, let me talk to you a little bit more. And we didn't do that in the first weeks and months of the pandemic. And, and everyone suffered because of that. That's a great story, Eric. Uh, I told you uh, off camera that I had a similar experience a number of years ago. I was fortunate to participate in the first Intel Community Intel Fellows Program, which was run by uh, Bob Gates. And it was a group of newly promoted flag rank officers from across the community that were brought together at Y River for a couple of weeks. It was one of the early attempts to kind of get us to know each other and and start breaking down some of the stovepipes. Hmm. And one of the speakers was Madeleine Albright. And she said a couple of very interesting things. First of all, she said, Bill Clinton's going to win the election and I'm going to be Secretary of State. Hmm. And the other thing she said was, you Intel fellows have to stop throwing things over the transom and not forgetting <laughs> about it. You've got to engage with us. You've got to get feedback. You've got to understand what we're interested in, because otherwise we're going to rely on other sources of information. That's, that's a great point. You know, it, it made a real impact with me and I think with the others in the room as well. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and that that story reminds me of two points. Uh, you know, first is that what was going on in that in that room at, at that that nice conference center on the Eastern Shore there, uh, is not done enough, to, to my mind, still today within the national security establishment, uh, where 
where we in the intelligence community, I'm thinking of my old days here, uh, you know, where we're talking with with potential consumers, we're getting to know each other. Uh, for instance, I wonder sometimes uh, whether or not the story of the pandemic might have been a little bit different if in the, the years before the outbreak, if experts on the medical and public health side, like Anthony Fauci, had spent time at at the intelligence community offices, at, at offsites, um, doing the sort of thing that in the military we've been doing for many years. Uh, in, in, my, in my career, for instance, uh, I think we still do a, a pretty good job of raising our intelligence officers along with our future operators and senior leaders, raising them together. You know, that, that's why my commissioning source was a, a Navy program called Aviation Officer Candidate School years ago, uh, which was mostly to build future naval aviators. But it was also where future naval intelligence officers got their basic training. And we and the future pilots, you know, the future squadron COs, future aircraft carrier uh, commanding officers, you know, we would you know, roll around in, in the, the dirt doing push-ups. We'd be on survival training together so that later, when we needed to talk, those leaders might listen to us. But, but also one other quick sea story, if I may, about how sometimes this does work better. And this is a story taken, taken us way back, but this is a real sea story about the Battle of Midway. You know, the Battle of Midway, only six months after the Battle of after Pearl Harbor. Pearl Harbor, of course, was the worst failure for naval intelligence in our history. The Battle of Midway was the greatest success for naval intelligence in our history. And what was the difference? A number of things were different, but one of the key differences was that the intelligence staff uh, in Hawaii, working for Admiral Nimitz, Admiral Nimitz was brought in after Pearl Harbor to, to clean house, uh, to take, take charge, but he did not fire his senior intelligence officers because he trusted them. And then several months after Pearl Harbor, when in intelligence in this new field of cryptology and signals intelligence, uh, there began to be indications that the Japanese had intentions against this little tiny insignificant atoll called Midway. They believed something was up. But when they went to Nimitz, who was a big supporter of intelligence, but still he just didn't buy it. He didn't believe it. He had other things to take care of. So what they did was not not just stop. Okay, we put the warning over the transom, and now you know we'll go back to back to the dungeon. You know the the, the skiff back there uh, in the basement. But instead, they kept pushing and saying, "You've got to, boss. You've got to understand what we're what we're talking about." And he ended up sending several of his senior officers down to the dungeon. You know what we call the skiff today uh, to listen and look at all the detailed intelligence. And finally, when those senior officers were convinced. They went back upstairs and they were able to convince Admiral Nimitz to prepare for what turned out to be the Battle of Midway. And we just don't do that enough today. That's another great story. Eric, shifting gears just slightly, I was pleased to see that you referred to in your book, an earlier book called The Great Influenza, which is a great study of the influenza of 1918. Drawn from those experiences, the experiences of 9-11, and then more recently, the experiences of 2020, are there some lessons learned that we in the U.S. government and specifically in the intelligence community should draw about preparing our decision makers for the future? Absolutely. The, the lesson that I think that we need to continue to take and remember from the great influenza uh, is that threats and challenges often 
come in flavors that we in the intelligence business are just not very well prepared to deal with. And in particular there, I'm talking about uh, the threat of a global pandemic was, for one thing, a non-traditional threat. It's, it's not the sort of thing that, that I signed up to deal with when I joined naval and military intelligence, of course. And even still today, talking to, to many insiders, I, I get a, a, a very strong direct feeling that, you know, uh, uh, epidemics are not what we do. We, you know, we do China, we do Russia, et cetera. Uh, so it was a non-traditional threat. But also it was you know, what, what we call a, a HILP, you know, high impact but low probability threat. You know, a, a once in a century outbreak, uh, perhaps. And, and of course, none of us are going to put a lot of our energy into a one, once in a century threat. But what we have learned, I think, with the pandemic was first that non-traditional threats can really hit us where it hurts. And, and not just in terms of killing a million Americans and, and many millions more overseas, but having a really important, significant military, national security impact. You know, everything from from forcing a, an aircraft carrier uh, to, to go back to Guam because it didn't have the, the people who were healthy enough to, to run it to, to many other aspects. So that's why a non-traditional threat certainly is important today. We need to pay more attention to those. The second is that, that HILP threat, high impact, low probability. Many experts in looking at climate change, uh, uh, demographics, many other aspects of the world situation today, argue that we are facing these once in a century threats of all sorts much more often today. You know, we, we can't wait another century before we deal with the threat of another once in a century flood, disaster, disease. We've got to pay more attention now. And then then the lesson from 9-11, obviously coming much more to home for, for all of us, is that tragically, I learned when starting my research for this, this new book, talking to experts in the intelligence field and public health, medicine, uh, folks from around the world, I learned that we made essentially the same intelligence mistakes in the COVID-19 pandemic as we had with 9-11. And what I mean by that is, before 9-11, just as before the pandemic, there were plenty of experts warning about the threat from international terrorism, about this, this guy, Osama bin Laden. And we all remember Richard Clark trying to raise that red flag in, in the White House, and he wasn't able to do it enough. Same, same for before the pandemic. And what I've found is sort of in a nutshell, what we need in order to prevent disasters, in order to make intelligence actionable, is we don't need more strategic, big picture intelligence. That's sort of a warning that someday this might happen. We need more specific tactical warning, which we didn't have before 9-11. You know, we didn't have anybody inside inside uh, the, the group of the hijackers. We didn't have that on COVID-19, although there's still some stories about what maybe was what should have been, could have been known in late 2019, but we really didn't know about this until it burst onto the public scene. So we didn't have tactical warning, but also before 9-11 and at the time of the pandemic, we didn't have receptive decision makers. We didn't have decision makers who were willing to be like Admiral Nimitz and say, well, okay, let me give you a chance to try to try to convince me. And that's what we need next time. You know, Eric, your uh, Nimitz example is a particularly good one. Is there something that uh, U.S. intelligence officers need to learn about convincing as opposed to warning, particularly when they're dealing with a new set of customers? 
So in the case of 9-11, of course, the Bush 43 group were just in office. They were just getting their feet on the ground. You know, their focus was definitely somewhere else. It wasn't on this. Uh, and the requirement was to grab their attention and focus them on the terrorist threat, um, which clearly wasn't sufficient. Uh, what are some things that people can be doing differently to to get the attention that they need? You know, that that's you know that's the million dollar question certainly, uh, and I think that there's no one answer, uh, unfortunately, but there are a lot of of sort of partial answers. You know, what we've found through looking at past examples of of good, strong intelligence receptivity. You know, that's a, a big part of what I try to do in, in my work try to understand what is it that, that helps make decision makers receptive, willing to, willing to listen to their intelligence advisors, not necessarily automatically doing what intelligence suggests, of course, but, but listening. And a big part of it is we need that strong prior relationship, sort of like, like I was describing that we do in the military and naval intelligence, where you know, before you become the, the J2, the N2, before you become a senior intelligence officer, supporting a decision maker, you know, you've got to know that that decision maker cold, you know, they've got to got to trust what you're you're saying. Uh, and and there, for instance, another another story uh, that applies is the the final decision making by President Obama about the decision to order the raid on Abbottabad that ended up killing Osama bin Laden. And as we know, because so much has been uh, talked about that episode, uh, we remember hearing about uh, the, the final briefing when President Obama went around the room to his top advisors and asked them, you know, how how confident were they uh, in the assessment that bin Laden was hiding in, in that, that compound in Abbottabad? And as I think most, most of our listeners remember hearing, you know, nobody was really all that confident. Uh, but nonetheless, there was sort of a preponderance of, of assessment. And in the end, President Obama trusted his intelligence community, his national security advisors, and, and went ahead with ordering uh, SEAL Team 6 to, to take that, that initiative. Uh, and if he hadn't had that trust, that confidence, uh, he wouldn't have made that, that call. And so we need to develop leaders in all levels of our government. And that's another one of the lessons from the pandemic, that it's not enough just to see if we can help educate the president about intelligence more. And of course, you can only go so far uh, as, as you can, as we know, uh, with that, that position. But we need to do a better job throughout our government, the federal government, and including state and locals, in educating our leaders and decision makers about intelligence and warning, whether it's in this case, uh, what could come as equally from a public health surveillance system or from an, a classified intelligence system. Because we learned with the pandemic, what many of us probably didn't, didn't really anticipate, you know, that so many of the important decisions about our health and public health uh, disease issues in America are made at the very local level. Mm -hmm. you know, typically a county uh, public health commissioner, you know, most of us probably had never even heard of, wouldn't have known the name of our county uh, health officials until the pandemic uh, struck. And then we found it was often, it was those individuals who were deciding whether or not our shops can stay open, our school, schools can stay open. And those officials, in most cases, didn't know enough about what kinds of sources of intelligence, especially from outside their, their small community, uh, they might need in order to make decisions.
Eric, it's been a few years since you and I retired from government. Um, and there have been a number of advances in some very interesting new areas. One of them that I mentioned to you off camera is open source intelligence, OSINT. And actually, um, one of the newer U.S. intelligence agencies, the National Geos Geospatial Intelligence Agency, NGA, has been doing a lot in that area. Particularly when we look at new non-traditional global threats, is there more of a role for OSINT or for this uh, one project that I pointed out to you off camera, the NGA project called the Terrorline Project? Do you think they might be able to contribute more in helping us to, one, identify, but two, uh, address those kinds of threats. Well, I'll just describe to our audience very quickly um, what the Terrorline Project is. Um, and I actually did an interview with uh, Chris Rasmussen, the NGA officer who um, manages that program. It's a program funded by MGA, so they provide both funding and also technical advice uh, and guidance to a number of NGOs, private organizations around the world, to study open source issues, but to use tools and technology and funding from NGA to study those. Um, it occurred to me that that gives us a tremendous potential multiplier effect to harness resources that we never had at our disposal before. Absolutely. That, and that is a great program. That, that's a great interview that you have uh, with Rasmussen. I definitely recommend people take a look if they hadn't seen it before. And certainly, one of the big lessons from the COVID pandemic and the intelligence failures of, of the, the ongoing continuing pandemic is that we need to make better use of open source information and, and also what is often sort of a, a, an intersecting Venn diagram, medical and scientific information, which, which often is, is completely open. Of course, the scientific world operates on a different principle from the intelligence world. You know, the whole idea is to try to make scientific information available for peer review, those sorts of things. But but it isn't always as open as we'd like. Um, but we definitely need to to do that. And uh, products, uh, uh, programs such as Terrorline to be able to, to help people who may not be within the intelligence community, but may have a lot of insight to offer it is really important. We obviously we've all learned so much more about the capabilities of open source intelligence from the experience uh, watching the Russian invasion of, of Ukraine and the war there. You know, uh, imagery sources from private companies, those sorts of things. You know, doing all sorts of really fascinating work, such as looking at the, the number of cars in the parking lots of hospitals in China, for instance, to try to get a, a, a sense over time of what's going on in, in terms of health in that, that community, how many people are at the hospital, those, those sorts of things. And I definitely want to give a strong shout out to NGA, because as you were saying, NGA has been in the forefront of working with the, the non-governmental community, providing open, unclassified intelligence that can support non-governmental organizations, you know, way back as far as in, in sort of Internet and, and open source terms. It was a while ago, but the, uh, the 2014 Ebola outbreak in Africa, for instance, NGA put up a, a public website where they could provide geospatial mapping information for NGOs on the ground in Africa that were looking for, whether it's a place to, to set up a headquarters uh, or other indications in imagery of where the disease might have spread. And NGA continues to do that. But there is a, a debate, and I, I wonder, Jim, what you think about this, uh, 
a debate over whether or not open source intelligence should be given its own agency. Should it belong to a separate IC, I guess be the 19th agency in the intelligence community? You know, experts often from outside the community, such as Amy Ziegart. Amy Ziegart argues very strongly in a new book that she's got out that we need to have an OSINT agency that you can only get enough attention, enough focus. You know, you, if you have somebody sitting at the head of the table uh, who who has OSINT, uh, you know, that thinks about OSINT uh, every day. Uh, and I'm not sure about that, but it, it seems like probably a good idea. And I ask, if you don't mind my asking you, Jim, what do you think about that idea? You know, I think there is more discussion going on inside the community about that very thing. And the argument that you make is a very sound one, and that is that unless you have a separate identity, resources don't flow. You don't get the people and the money uh, that you need to actually do the work. So that may become necessary over time. Yeah, yeah. But but as as you've talked about with, with previous guests on your show, uh, the, the problem here is, of course, that open source intelligence isn't isn't a, a it's not a separate collection specialty you know uh, the open source world doesn't own its own collection tools its own satellites uh, uh, it, it doesn't have its own spies that kind of would I'm, I'm worried that if we were to set up a, a separate OSINT agency it would kind of end up being sort of like a DHS the Department of Homeland Security intelligence arm which is an agency with a very important role but it's it's been sort of lost ever since it was established without its its own collection capabilities, without its its own sort of specialty. Uh, it relies so largely on reporting by others, collection by others, and then they analyze it for their own consumers. So I'm, I'm still not completely convinced that a new OSINT agency is the way to go. Well, we'll do one more uh, shout out, and that is to Elliot Jardin, who is the um, establisher of the new OSINT Foundation. And I had Elliot on with an interview a few months ago. I'm sure he would have a point of view on this. We might have to ask him. That's right. And I've, I've seen that interview as well. And that, that's a great one. I also recommend that. Uh, and, and certainly any major change like that, uh, you know, is, is debatable and, and would certainly not be, uh, you know, a completely good, you know, they're good, bads and others. Uh, so it would take a, a lot of, lot of money. But if I, if I can, uh, let me say that I do think when it comes to the problem of pandemics of health threats, that there are organizational changes that we do need to make that wouldn't be as as sort of cataclysmic as, as creating a, a new OSINT agency that would just lead to a squabble with every other intelligence agency. But for instance, one of the changes that we need to make, and, and I don't see us making it, is to elevate the the job, the role, the, the, the interest in health security uh, to a higher level within the IC. You know, we we learned, as many of us uh, didn't really fully understand before the pandemic, we learned that there is this organization called the National Center for Medical Intelligence. But it it is a relatively small organization under DIA uh, and, you know, sort of in, in uh, uh, beltway terms, you know, it, it's kind of small potatoes. Uh, we need to elevate that organization to a full intelligence center much the same way that after 9-11, we realized we've got to have a, a place. You know, even in this virtual world, you need to have have physical uh, uh, space where people can put together all the intelligence. And so we created the National Center, uh, National Counterterrorism Center, which has been 
such a great success. We need to do that about health intelligence, uh, and I think we need to elevate that center into a national center that would be fully engaged with, with CIA, NSA, all the elements of the intelligence community. Well, the book is called The COVID-19 Intelligence Failure, While Warning Wasn't Enough. I really want to thank Eric Dahl and the Naval Postgraduate School for really a very stimulating conversation. Jim, thank you very much. Really enjoyed talking with you.